from deep in the heart of quarantine <laughs> in the hills above Genoa, New York. That's we it. bring you Disaster Tales. That's my fake theme song. <laughs> We're so glad we have this time together. <laughs> yeah, we pull on my ear. <laughs> um, Did you see? Like Van Gogh. No, no, not quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't just pull. He pulled and Boop. cut. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, well, today, even though we're All right. we're relatively <laughs> cheerful considering the situation, we're going to be talking about uh, COVID-19, what it is, how it's affecting us, how it gets treated, why people need assistance, and what the, the better courses of getting rid of this disease are. So, did I cover everything? That's correct. I, I think you did. Oh, good. Sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> plus, plus a couple other kind of bizarre things that Barbara found. And so we're on our way. So first of all, COVID-19. Yes, we are. Which is actually called MERS-2. It's, it's Coronavirus 2019 is how it got that shortened name, COVID-19. But it's actually a MERS virus. And what how it's killing most people is right. it's killing them by by giving them a pneumonia that they can't recover from and and because they can't process the oxygen and everything they start to have organ failure and they die and unfortunately they actually go into a state called ARDS adult respiratory distress syndrome right. is the resultant uh, from the, the pneumonia mm -hmm. and so what happens is they are not able to perfuse oxygen across the membrane from the lung into the bloodstream and that's why these people come in with uncharacteristically low oxygen levels oh. I mean like deadly oxygen levels there's yeah there's people coming in to doctors off doctors and emergency rooms with with levels under 80 and they're still talking on their cell phone while they're being intubated and one doctor said he saw somebody come in with one as low as 50, which is you should already be dead by mm -hmm. then. And I don't know how he fared after that, but right. yeah, it's not good. And it's not just ki killing elderly people and people with predisposition, whatever, diseases, um, pre-existing, what do you call it? Yeah, pre-existing conditions. Yeah. Um, pre-existing pre conditions or comorbidities they call it comorbidities yeah. too and, and there are things like chronic yeah chronic, chronic kidney disease copd which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder also diabetes and um what else asthma asthma yeah my family's doing great asthma is a big one mm -hmm. yeah and my family yeah mine too kidney you know? disease diabetes asthma and then somebody who smokes so that's uh, hmm. that could be a really big hit. Yeah, that's this, this a lot of comorbidities there. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what I'm what oh, the original instructions for people that was sent out back at the very beginning of this was that because they didn't want to overload the hospitals, they were telling people not to come in until they had difficulty breathing. 
And what I've been reading about this disease, they're finding out that by the time you have difficulty breathing, it's too late. Normally, when you have pneumonia and you have right. difficulty breathing, you have your chest, the lungs kind of harden because of the infection that's in there. And because of the way this is affecting the lungs, you don't get that hardening. So you don't get that pressure on your chest early enough to do something about it. You, they actually stay soft well into right. being being very, very ill. Well, and that's the thing, that when the membranes um, are saturated, the way they're saturated with adult respiratory distress syndrome, it goes very quickly into a spiral of decompensation where you, you lose oxygen levels, where you start to have an increased work of breathing and pain, you know, and shortness of breath. But by the time you're into that part of the cycle, you're already well into the disease process and reversing ARDS is a very difficult thing to do because of the fact that the membranes just are not, you can't get oxygen across them. Mm -hmm. And of course you're required to have oxygen to function. One of the things that they're seeing that's really kind of unusual is that they're seeing people with blood clots, um, like in the, in their fingers, their toes, mm -hmm. um, just spontaneous. And these are young, many of them are young people, excuse me, young people with no apparent illness, but what's happening is because of the low oxygen levels and them not being able to detect them early enough, they're developing more red blood cells to load oxygen on and it's causing the blood to thicken and that's what causes the blood clots. Okay. So they're actually, the body is responding to the low oxygen level by creating more red blood cells, which in turn creates a thickening of the blood, which in turn produces blood clots. Yeah. So it's like a cyclic, you know, response of the body. Yeah, well, I know that in, in the 1918 flu, which is the thing I compare this to, it's the most similar thing that I know of, is that um, the doctors could tell by the color of the patient when they came in, whether they would, whether they would, um, survive or not and they said they actually had patients come in who were so dark cyanotic without oxygen that they couldn't tell what race they were so that's that's mm -hmm. a lot of what blood clots cyanosis lack of oxygen in the blood well what it is is yeah that they're not loading oxygen they're not getting it into the the pulmonary system and so they have that the red blood cells are, are saying, okay, we need to make more. It's like at a higher altitude, people have higher levels of hemoglobin because the higher the altitude is, the less tension there is on the oxygen. And so you need more oxygen to be able to draw, to be able to function. Right. Like people get altitude sickness when they go to a higher elevation. And what they do is they develop what's called polycythemia. Mm hmm and that's where the big, you make more red blood cells so that you can load more oxygen. So at a higher altitude with lower air pressure, there's not enough pressure to push the oxygen through the lungs. And so they develop more red blood cells to carry what oxygen comes through. Is that what you're saying? Well, there's, there's not enough oxygen in, in the environment for them. So they have to create more blood cells to increase the concentration okay. because it's based on the concentration of oxygen in, in the system. So the less oxygen in your environment, the more you have to load into the cell to maintain the same um, level of oxygenation. Right. 
It's, and people who have chronic lung disease do the same thing. They develop really high hemoglobins, and they, they don't respond to oxygen deprivation because they've shifted into what's called hypoxic drive, which is right. where they respond based on getting enough oxygen. Mm-hmm. So I know it's kind of complex. It's interesting, though, because this exhibits all of the, all of the characteristics of people who develop polycythemia. That's why they're, they're getting the blood clots. Also, I've known people who've had hallucinations along with this particular disease, too. So now, does that come with the fever or the anoxia or what? Hypoxia? Whatever. You know, it's hard to say. They may have some swelling in the brain um, due to uh, the person that I spoke with didn't have a fever at the time of the hallucinations. Mm-hmm. But there may have been some residual swelling in the brain because of the prior fever. Yeah. And so the body you know, compensates by, you know, the brain function changing when you're in that situation. So I don't know. It's There's a lot of things going on with this. There's people who have gastrointestinal issues, mm-hmm. you know, related to the positive test. I have, a, we know a family here that they didn't have any of the respiratory symptoms at all. Theirs was all gastrointestinal, but mm-hmm. they still all tested positive. Wow. Did they have so, symptoms? And we just, Did they run a fever? Or have they didn't have of, any respiratory symptoms. But did they have any They did have fevers, symptoms? but any diarrhea? Yeah, they did have like gastrointestinal that? symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right, diarrhea, stomach upset, um, you know, not, 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 you know, not hungry, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. But theirs was mostly gastro. So. So let me ask you this. You, yeah, it's. We were talking about what kind of cells this virus is attacking, and the H H two. They think it's an H two N one, I believe. And the H is hemagglutinin, and the H2 viruses attack epithelial cells, and you find those in the lungs and where else? Right. Well, an epithelial cell by nature is a cell that it's a barrier between the inside of the body and the outside of the body. So epithelium can be on the, in the respiratory tract, the sinuses, the throat, the chest, also the gastrointestinal tract because that's your interface between you and the outside world. You take in nutrition, you take in, you know, bacteria, different things like that. But there's also epithelial cells in other organs of the body and also in the skin, underneath the skin. Mm -hmm. You have the epithelial cells and then you have the endothelial cells, which are on the outside. But those ones in between mediate or moderate things taken in through the skin too. So it basically, it's a protective cell that says, okay, you can come in, you can't come in. And what it's, this is doing, apparently, is exciting that layer of the epithelium and causing the body to react, super react to whatever it is, the toxin or whatever the virus is. Mm-hmm. And so that super reaction creates severe inflammation. It creates the, the respiratory distress syndrome that we've seen. It, it creates the fevers because your body's saying, get out, get out, get out. And it's so overwhelmed that it overreacts. And a lot of times, if you some of the pandemics that have happened in the past, it wasn't the elderly or the young who passed away consistently, but it was the younger people because their immune systems were so healthy that they reacted to the the virus or the bacteria, and they overreacted to it and ended up having respiratory distress, mm-hmm. drown you know basically drowning in your own secretions because your body's overreacting to mm-hmm. it. 
So, so epithelial cells are basically like Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. Don't think I saw that one. They're <laughs> he, like Pac-Man. he's a bouncer. <laughs> so they're bouncers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And Pac-Man that goes after the bad ones, you exactly. know. Exactly. But... I've seen a lot of Pac-Man yeah. references for this. <laughs> like going through the grocery store, avoiding the ghosts, you know, get, getting your food and then, but not being in the same yeah, house right. as somebody else. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. Avoiding and skirting people in your, so you don't get closer than six feet. Yeah. That's right. One, one large, one medium alligator away from somebody or one Keanu Reeves or one giant sea turtle mm-hmm. that's how far you have to stay at least right. stay away from those those people I don't what else is six feet I don't know one of our dads <laughs> yeah our dad, <laughs> we stay right. one dad away from each other we're good because <laughs> he was six one four. dad away yeah that's right <clears throat> of course they have to be lying down it's not upright it's got to be lying down you know one horizontal bed that's all you get oh and one bagel <clears throat> tiger too awesome. You stay one Bengal tiger away. Okay. Of course, if they had a Bengal tiger between us, I would stay very far away. But <laughs> that's a whole yeah. other cat. There. I've seen a, seen a meme with some guy with this with this this prickly outfit on, like with you know spikes sticking out of it on the head and the shoulders, and the whole body's covered with these spikes. <laughs> and it says, "This is me when the huggers come out after quarantine. You know, <laughs> stay away, stay away." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> No, you said something that is very... You know, there's some real significant mental health issues. Yeah, (laughs) mental health issues that go along with this. You know, we won't get into that at this point. But, you know, people with feelings of, you know, depression and isolation and, you know... Well, and we'll we'll go into that. People remodeling their kitchen. (laughs) Finding weird things to do. Well, well, let's finish talking about symptoms because there's... (laughs) There's other symptoms as well. They've had they've had symptoms of um, in infants arterial swelling and um, heart damage. I think that the hallucinations were pretty unusual for from what I because yeah. I didn't think about those, but um, it was definitely something that was documented. And then, of course, the blood clots. Mm-hmm. The like the peripheral blood clots in the fingers and the toes, people just spontaneously showing up with these blood clots, and then when they check their saturation, their saturations are really low, mm-hmm. you know, or they could be normal, but the fact that their blood has increased in production, you right. know, can. Um, but this, but this, and causes, then of course the gastro stuff. Right. This causes like black fingers and toes. Those blood clots. Now, are there blood clots that can travel into right. the lungs from right. there? Oh, yeah. If they dislodge, they can definitely travel um, to the lungs or the brain, produce a stroke, produce a heart attack, you know, respiratory arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fevers, the the fevers are, are pretty high with this, but they found that once a person's afebrile for a couple of days, then they're pretty much over the worst of the, of the actual viral. Because mm-hmm. your body responds by producing a fever. It's trying to kick everything out. And mm-hmm. if you have a hyperreactive system, that seems to be when people really get in trouble. Because some people go through and have very mild symptoms right. or no symptoms at all. But then other people have really violent reactions. And right. Symptoms. The vast majority of people that get this aren't having 
serious symptoms and a lot of them are having no symptoms but the problem is that if if you have right. if you if it does start to affect you and make you ill it can make you very very ill very very quickly and it's difficult unless you catch it immediately to turn it around because once you go on a ventilator i think it's what 10 percent right. chance you're going to come off alive isn't that what they're saying for this yeah and that's another thing that i really yeah i have found to be kind of inconsistent is that they're putting people on ventilators straight from being on a nasal cannula which mm -hmm. is not at all the, the protocols that we went through when we were, you know, doing patient care. I mean, I'm not actively in patient care right now, but um, you went through a whole list of things before you went into intubation. That was... Right. Hold on. First of all, what is your medical background? So everybody knows. Okay. Okay. I'm a registered respiratory therapist, mm -hmm. and I worked in hospital for about 35 years. And I dealt with in intensive care, pediatric, neonatal. I did everything. Mm -hmm. It was, um, you know, wide basis of experience. And intubation is when they take place, take the place of your own ventilation. What they do is they put a tube in your in your throat, and they put you on a ventilator, which is a machine that forces air into a into a person to provide adequate respiratory function. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is generally when they're getting ready to intubate somebody, they, they go through a certain number of steps to try to avoid that because ventilation with a ventilator is not, it's, it, there's a lot of possible complications. Things like what they call barotrauma, where a person gets too much air at one time and it actually ruptures a lung. Mm -hmm. Or ventilator-associated pneumonia, where a person will develop a really bad infection while they're on a ventilator. Mm -hmm. And also taking away the, the ability of the respiratory muscles to do what they need to do, it weakens the muscles. Also, they have to, most of the time when a person's on a ventilator, they have to paralyze them. Mm -hmm. They have to give them medications that are very strong to prevent them from fighting against the ventilator. And so that reduces muscle tone. And so when they come off the ventilator, if they come off the ventilator, mm -hmm. they're generally very, very weak, and they're, they really have a lot of rehabilitation that they have to go through. So what would, be a, what would be the normal course for ARDS then from a respiratory therapist standpoint? What's, what would be the, the progress of treatment for ARDS? Adult, adult respiratory distress syndrome. Mm -hmm. So with ARDS, that is like the end stage of respiratory distress. But there are several things that lead up to that. Mm -hmm. You have oxygen levels that are low. You have um, ventilation. People get tired. They get weak because of their increased work of breathing. Mm -hmm. But there are several things you can do before putting a person on the ventilator to try to stop those things from going forward. You can put them on... Um, what's called a Venturi mask, which gives a higher level of oxygen, a percentage of oxygen to the person. Mm -hmm. You can put them on what's called a non-rebreather mask, which is where they just com breathe completely 100% oxygen. Mm -hmm. You can put them on something called CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure, or BiPAP, which is bi-level positive airway pressure. And what happens with that is they have a mask, they deliver a pressure breath to the person, going in and then it maintains a level of pressure when it goes out because it keeps the airways open and keeps the, the air sacs open. Mm -hmm. And so that, those are all steps that you could take before you put a person on a ventilator. 
Well, what's happened in this situation is they've gone directly from a person on a nasal cannula at six liters, which is just a very low flow of oxygen, mm-hmm. to putting them in, intubating them. There's nobody with the person at the hospital to make the decision. They're told this is what's going to keep you alive. There's no one accountable for what, what criteria they're using to make that decision for a large measure because you really need to ha- draw an arterial blood gas to see how much oxygen they're actually getting, how well they're, and efficient their breathing is in order to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking at a chest x-ray. They're looking at blood gases. They're looking at <clears throat> the patient's work of breathing. You know, all of these factors that go into play before you actually put a person on a ventilator. So, we just had a gunshot. You heard a gunshot? Yeah. I'm going to have to make some oh. more curtains because I don't want people seeing in because we're getting to the point where, did you see where the um, the park ranger got pushed in the pool when he was trying to get people to to separate to do their social distancing? No, and then I didn't. A, a guy in Detroit was working at, he was like a, like a bouncer. He was security at this place, like a, I don't know if it was a Walmart or something like that, but um, he was went up to some people and said, you know, you're, you're supposed to be wearing a mask and you need to be six feet apart. And they got into an argument and the people left and they came back and they shot him and killed him. And, and when they're going out to these protests, these people are taking AR-15s out. Uh, We'll talk about this after. I'm sorry. But, but violence is coming. Right. No, that's okay. And so we need to talk about that too, but we'll skip that for now. Uh, and okay. as, food get, as food gets more scarce, there's going to be even more of it. So Right. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to the uh, the different levels of treatment. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Yeah, and they and they can give medications. They can give medications to reduce the amount of fluid load on the person. Give them a diuretic or something like a Lasix or something like that to reduce the amount of fluid. They can give antiviral medications like the remdesivir, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And then they've shown that some, some other medications have been helpful too, like the hydrochloroquine and the ZPAC or Zithromycin. And so there's a lot of things they can do leading up to that point where they make the decision and commit the person to the ventilator. Actually, um, and to, just the to stop is, you there for just a second, actually the hydrochloroquine has been shown to be more detrimental and not terribly helpful. There's not a lot of positive effects that they can actually relate to it, but there are there have been deaths because they were trying they didn't do any clinical trials when they started talking about that. And when they did do the trials, they found out that it was killing people. So hydroxychloroquine is not something you should take without uh, malaria, for one thing. And the other thing is without, you know, the direct supervision of a doctor who knows what he's doing. So, like, not Dr. Phil. (laughs) Well, like the people who... Like the people who took the hydroxychloroquine that was a fish tank sterilizer and... They ended up, the man ended up dying because he did that. That was yeah. not very smart. But <laughs> under medical direction, everything. Right. But so looking at, okay, let's look at New York State because New York State has been really a hotbed for this, this issue, this yeah, whole it's issue. The biggest, biggest um, outbreak. Between the ventilation and, you know, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and New York State has 6,832 registered respiratory therapists and 1,881 respiratory techs, okay? Mm-hmm. So you're talking right about 8,000, 9,000 people, okay? Right. Who do respiratory care? 
Respiratory care is a very specialized field because we, we run mechanical ventilators. That's what our job is, to run a mechanical ventilator. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes into running a mechanical ventilator. Not only the mechanical part of it, but understanding the effects of the pressure and how it works on the person's breathing efficiency. Um, maintaining sterile technique to suction people. People have to be suctioned every two up to every two hours, usually it's every two, but if it's in between and they have a lot of secretions, they have to be suctioned, which requires, especially if they're sedated and they're paralyzed, you have to be really careful about how you suction somebody because you can knock them out. That's like putting a small vacuum cleaner in through a tube to their lungs to suck out all the, the fluids that accumulated. That's okay. mucus. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, and then there's interpreting the blood gases, the, the, the effectiveness of the ventilation is determined by um, what's called a blood gas, which shows what their, their pH balance, their oxygen, their carbon dioxide, all of these different factors that show how efficient the ventilation is. Mm -hmm. And so it's not something that you can just say, here, nurses aid, run this ventilator. Okay. Yeah. So that in itself was an issue as far as, I mean, I was called up by the governor. They asked me to come back to work, to, to go to New York City you know, to work as a respiratory therapist. And mm -hmm. I, I said, well, I'm retired and I'm physically incapable, so I'm not, not going to do it. But the, it's a specialty. It's not mm -hmm. something that you can just lightly enter into. So first of all, you know, the clinicians that are available to do the work, the nursing staff, everybody. Mm -hmm. There's also the, the idea of ventilator circuits need to be changed every 24 hours. And the availability of circuits for the particular ventilators that they have Mm -hmm. was not adequate. So they were leaving circuits on patients, which breeds bacteria. And I think that that's another reason why a lot of people perish when they're on the ventilators, because they get a ventilator-associated pneumonia, mm -hmm. and then they end up perishing from that. So it may not have even been the corona that killed them. It may have just been an overwhelming infection and sepsis. Well, let me ask you this. I know in other, when we've had other outbreaks like this, like, um, the 1918 flu, the swine flu, all the other ones that did autopsies and took samples of all their of all the related tissues so that they could be studied. Uh, is do you think that they're getting a lot of autopsies done here? Because they what they do is they go in and they they slice get tissue slices and and send them in to be interpreted. Well, the thing is, if you look at the deaths in New York State, um, they had a confirmed 171,723 cases. This is as of May 5th. Mm -hmm. There were 48,383 hospitalizations, 13,724 deaths of patients with a positive COVID diagnosis. Okay. Mm -hmm. So whether it was a, a comorbidity that killed them or if it was actually the COVID, it's, it's, that's what the, it was labeled as. Mm -hmm. Then there was at least 500, 383 deaths that were probable COVID deaths. They were not tested for the disease. They just listed it as it had to have been COVID. But if you look at the fact, okay, where did heart disease and hypertension and diabetes and all the other diagnoses that kill people go during this pandemic? Mm -hmm. Are they still there? Or are they just attributing these deaths to COVID because... It helps the numbers. Are they testing the remains? That, see, this is my question. If you're going to learn about it, you need to you need to have the stuff to study. And and when there's right. a when there's a COVID death, this, somebody needs to go in and do an autopsy or at least at least take samples. And that'll tell you in the end whether 
the cause of death was related to the virus or not. Because, you, you know, if you take if you take a sample mm -hmm. of the lung tissue and there's no COVID in there, then then, you know, whatever pneumonia they had was from something else. But if you come in with COVID symptoms, then they don't test you. Right. And I think because of the scope of this and the, the, the numbers of people, the mortality rate, um, during the peak time of New York State between 4-1 and 4-3 or 13, I mean 4-13, mm -hmm. there was over 500 deaths per day. So I just don't think that the medical examiners would have enough staff and enough ability. I mean, just dealing with the bodies, you know, yeah. and... and and preventing other people from being secondarily infected. I don't know that they really could have done that kind of research. Yeah, and unfortunately that that happened in 1918 as well because and they ended up having bodies mm -hmm. like stacked in the hall at the morgue because they couldn't get to them quickly enough. Mm -hmm. So it makes me wonder how much research we're actually right. doing on this because and how accurate it is because we know we know people have COVID because they've been tested, and, but only like 1% of the population has been tested right. so far. And if whatever the percentage of those people that have COVID right. spread out among the rest of the United States, that's a, that's a huge number of people mm -hmm. with this disease. Right. Well, in New York State, uh, they, the statistic that I saw for New York State that approximately 12% of the population of New York has been tested for COVID. Mm-hmm. So we have a pretty high testing rate because they have drive-through test sites and things like that. Great. And so that's one of the reasons, that, too, why our numbers are so high, because we've done so much testing. Right. You know, they said when they started doing consistent testing that our numbers would spike, and they did. But now we're down to, as of 5-3, as of the 3rd of May, we were down to 27 deaths on, on May 3rd and only 324 new cases diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So we hit our peak at the beginning of April, and it started to taper from there, and now it's down to a very low infection rate and very low death rate. Mm -hmm. So whatever, I mean, what we did in New York, we did what they call the pause, where they, they just stopped everything. Mm -hmm. Non-essential workers weren't allowed to go. They, people had to work from home, you know, quarantine. Anybody who, you know, exhibited symptoms, they were legally, like, served a notice that they had to stay in their house for 14 days. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, there was a big, a big close down in New York State, and it did bring the numbers down. I don't think that's the only reason it brought the numbers down, because everything is cyclic, and, and illness is cyclic. Mm -hmm. You know, it has a peak, and then it tapers. And once people have developed immunity to it, of course, those people won't be reinfected because they've already already developed immunity well they're actually finding patients that have a secondary they had they they get over the covid they're clear and then they get it again so there's not a real guarantee that that this is something that we're going to get over and then it'll go away because we're all immune to it the immunity is still kind of a question right now mm -hmm. although i would certainly think we would but I think, too, though, if you look at the way the symptoms have changed for this illness mm -hmm. over the course of the illness, that it, it may have a shifting uh, structure. Mm -hmm. And because it is, it's like in a genetic envelope that is different than like HIV is in a different genetic envelope mm -hmm. than is natural, like it's in an animal envelope, 
that it, the shift may occur because of that abnormal genetic structure. Well, do you think it would all be shift or could it be that we're finding out as more and more people come in that this this virus actually is affecting more than we originally thought and we just weren't we weren't seeing it at the beginning. Could that be some of that as well? Mhm. You know, it's hard to say because um people's immune systems are really not in peak condition. The mm -hmm. American diet you know, the ability of people to fight off infection, the stress levels, all of those things influence the response of the immune system. Mm -hmm. And most people's immune systems are trashed because yeah. they just don't have health, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it may be that that's why we're seeing an increase or, or an influx of different symptoms and, and recurrence because just the immune systems themselves are just not healthy. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you boost your immune system? Well, of course, proper diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, proper diet. Um, sugar is one of the worst immunosuppressants that we can eat. When you eat sugar, your immune system is suppressed. When you drink soda, it's suppressed. You know, all of these, these things that cause the immune system to lose its, its effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Having proper gut health, things like probiotics, things like um, having good nutrition where you're, you know, you're, your gastrointestinal system is functioning properly mm -hmm. with fruits and vegetables and all the things that keep you healthy. Um, reduction of stress, that's another huge part. Stress decreases your immune response because your body can't produce the B vitamins that it needs to produce to keep your gut healthy when you're under stress. And the cortisol levels drop and you end up getting, you know, immune system issues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, there's things we can do, proper exercise, enough rest, you know, all things that we don't do in this country. We're always push, 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 push. Mm -hmm. And I think that if nothing else, this period of time that we've been in here in New York where we've paused has really caused us to pause, mm -hmm. to really just slow down, to, you know, get, uh, you know, just reduce the amount of stress and outside things that, that take your attention mm -hmm. and focus a little bit more. It's been, it's been healthy for people, I think, to be able to do that and just step out of that rat race for a while. Yeah, of course, of course, there's also stress about not having income, and that's a big problem. You know, you, under, you understand that you right. have to keep people apart while you're fighting the virus until all it's all gone. But during that time, people also need to eat. And so people who don't have like jobs they can work from home or they have, you know, time time that they can take off to, or, or take vacation or whatever. They're they're mm -hmm. sitting at home and worrying about how am I going to feed my kids because I don't have enough money to go to the store. And, right. or, or they've lost their job because the business has closed. Right. And that's, you know, a whole other part of this 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 piece of this puzzle is that okay so how do we reintroduce those people into society those how do we restart the economy without putting people in danger of, of a spike in the epidemic mm -hmm. and that's a very delicate balance I've looked at the plan for New York State and it, it's sensible you know it, it introduces initial um, you know, initial guidelines, and then it tracks for two weeks and sees how that worked. And if they get a spike in cases or they get, 
you know, uh, an increase in infection rates, then they rock it back mm-hmm. and they start over again. They, they have like a certain guideline for how much, how high they will allow it to go before they say, okay, shut this baby down again. And right. to me, that's sensible because you are going to probably see a somewhat of a spike, but if people are observant of the social distancing and they're observant of, you know, protecting themselves and washing their hands and all the things that we know can prevent the spread of this virus because mm-hmm. it is lipophilic. It has it has a fatty layer around the outside of it that holds it together, that holds those little spikes on. Mm-hmm. And if you use soap on that, it breaks down that lipophilic layer and it opens it up to destruction. So the more that they, you wash the hands, the more that you keep good hygiene, the better the chances of it reducing and not being transmitted. Okay, so that's interesting. So just just so, soap, wash your phys- hands. Just soap physically <laughs> attacks the virus and breaks it down. So that's good to, that's good to know. That, right. that, that it would... breaks down the outer the outer fatty layer of it is what keeps it together mm-hmm. and they can break that you can break down that fatty layer on the outside by using soap. Well, that's good to know. So, yeah, yeah. because just tell be, tell mm-hmm. somebody to wash their hands over and over again without telling them why to me is people are going to get tired of doing it right. and they're going to stop. But if they know why they're doing it, that's it, then they're more likely to continue. Right. So I'm, I'm glad you told us that because that's something that most people don't know. And they say 20 seconds. You sing happy birthday twice. That's how much. And you wash the fronts, you wash the backs, you clean your nails, just like we did in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, rub the hands together, lots of friction, lots of soap in between the fingers, all of those things, and do it for 20 seconds. Rinse, dry, and your hands are clean. And my daughter did a video, um, which I'll have to put up on up, up on our page on Facebook, that shows how to wash your hands. And what she did was she put on blue gloves, she took white paint, and she washed her hands. And she found out that, you know, between the fingers stayed dark and the back of the thumb stayed dark so that you know that's right. what you have to wash. And after that, she demonstrated how to right. take those gloves off correctly because you can't just pull those gloves off with right. one hand and then with your bare hand pull the other one off you have to do it in such a way that you don't right. touch the infected surface so you have to actually turn it inside out right and hold on to the inside of it so right. if it's i can called sterile technique right if i can get yeah. that video up i'll put it on our disaster oh. tales pages and the fan page and on our website and then people, y'all yeah, can go look at www.disastertales.com <clears throat> and Disaster Tales Podcast Fans and Disaster Tales on Facebook. Because I can, I can attest for myself in the 35 years that I worked in hospital, mm-hmm. hand washing was the best protection against infection that you can have. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was exposed to some pretty heavy duty stuff. And, you know, worked in isolation, had to do sterile technique for for different procedures and worked in surgery some, you know, I mean, and it definitely makes a difference. That hand washing is key to keeping yourself healthy. And then, of course, you know, keeping your hands clean and not touching your face because you transmit things from hand to face. You touch a surface, you touch your face, everything that's on that surface is now on your face. And they say it can live for several days. Well, and that's 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 why pink eye is so contagious, because 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 pink eye is is lives in fecal matter, and if you don't wash your hands and then you touch your face, it'll get in your eye and you get pink eye, which is not deadly, but it's the same right. It's the same function there, 
that we would have. And people do touch their face. You touch your face, I don't know what, four or five times a minute maybe or something like that. And you don't realize it. Yeah. So having the hands clean means that when you do accidentally touch your face, you're not transmitting anything close to your mouth and eyes or nose. And that's the thing about the masks. I know that, you know, they're saying that the mask is protective. It does protect your, you know, because it's droplet, it's droplet, Mm -hmm. you know, transmission. So when you have a mask on, the droplets aren't coming away from you. Mm -hmm. But when you're messing with your mask, trying to keep it out of your eyes or trying to keep your glasses from fogging up, you know, it's like you have to really be attentive to that and realize that you're touching yourself. As soon as you touch the outside of your mask, everything you were trying to protect yourself from is on your hands. So when you take off your mask, you reach behind your ear and you pull that out and you pull it away from your face until it's off your other ear and hold it by that ear elastic. Do not touch the front of the mask. Don't touch the mask at all that way. You don't have to worry about it. Right. And 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 most of these masks that I'm seeing on people are made of fabric so they can be washed. And once again, the soap will, the soap will right. kill any virus that's on the outside. So if you're wearing a mask, wear it, right. take it, put it on and take it off correctly and make sure to wash it frequently. Right. And you can put it in the dryer and that again, the heat, the heat will kill it too. The heat will help with the killing the bacteria. Right. Or you can hang it outside on the, lo- if you hang it outside on the line where the sun can hit it, that also mm-hmm. kills the virus. So... You know, right, the UV kills it too. Yeah. But a lot of people, you know, they're hearing that they have to do this stuff and they don't really understand the why and the how. So I think it's really important that we tell them right. what's going on, why they're having to do what they're doing, and how to do it correctly. And I think that's a service that we can provide here. Yes. And the thing is, it, right, and droplet transmission, when a person sneezes, their sneeze, the droplets that come with that sneeze, I know everybody sneezed so hard that it felt like your insides were coming out. That can be transmitted six feet. That's more. why they tell you the social distancing right. limit is six feet or more. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, and when you cough, you know, and you, you just cough into that, that puts it a cloud out that's as wide and as long as double your body size. Right. And so you've got this huge cloud of infectious material out there. And, I mean, you can get really, like, crazy about it. Mm-hmm. But if you do the, all of the, a little bit of all of it, instead of, like, being, like, hypervigilant, oh, I'm going to wash my hands, wash my hands, wash my hands, but then I'm going to take my mask off and stick my fingers in my face, you know. <laughs> so you, you just have to really be, you know, be aware. I think that's a huge part of it is just being aware that anytime you touch your, your face, your, whatever you've touched is touching your face. The best way I've ever seen to teach that is when I was working at the nuclear weapons facility and they were doing radiation training. Um, what they did was they had this um, they had this material and they put it on your gloves. It was like Vaseline. And then you went around and went through mm-hmm. class for an hour. And then at the end of class, they got out a black light that showed you everywhere that that material had touched. And it was, the pl- the room would light up. It was on the doorknobs. It was on your face, your chair, your clothes, your, you know, everything. It was, it was everywhere. Right. And, and so you have to think everywhere. that. Everywhere. Yeah. You have to think that, you know, you have, to, well, how am I trying to say this? Just pretend that everything has cooties. 
If you remember when you were a kid, you didn't want to get right. cooties. If somebody touched you, you brushed them off, ah! you know, and you you could almost feel them on mm-hmm. you. So just pretend that you that right that, that there's cooties, and you have to make sure they're not on your hands, and you don't accidentally <laughs> put them on your face, and you don't get them in your hair, or you don't you, you know you don't touch them on your mask because ooh, it's cooties, and and it's the same principle. I know that sounds really dumb, but it's this infection control is basically the fear of cooties. And so <laughs> what's that? Cootie protection. I have cootie protection. Oh, that's right. Put a CP on your <laughs> hand. Cootie protection. <laughs> Except instead of a CP, just put a glove. You can put CP on your glove if you like. But yes. Right. But it's cooties. So mm. only it's much more deadly. Even though it killed your spirit to get cooties. And I think people... (laughs) Sorry. Right. I think people need to realize, too, that just because you wear gloves does not mean you're protected. No. Because whatever is on those gloves, you know, if you touch yourself when... I mean, I've seen people in the store with masks and a glove, and they're adjusting their mask with their gloved hand. Right. It's like, no, you know, you have to be... And I think if you've worked in surgery... Like I've worked in surgery, I've mm-hmm. worked in, in, in environments that are isolation where everything has to be, you know, no touch, that you learn those things and they become ingrained and that's how I function now as a, I mean, I'm, right. I'm a hand washer, I'm a, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a disinfector, that's just the way I am because I've learned it over the years because I know, they, they used to take my shoes, you know, when we were going through microbiology, they'd take your shoes when you wore them at the hospital and they'd scrape a little bit off the bottom of your shoes and put it on a slide and let you look at it. Ugh. You would not believe the disgusting grossness that was on those shoes, you I know? I mean, people who come in the house, you take your shoes off, you know? Mm-hmm. And especially medical workers, you take your shoes off and you leave them outside because yeah. the stuff that's on them. When I was working and my kids were, I never wore my shoes in the house. Mm-hmm. I always took them off and left them outside because I knew what was on them. Yeah. So if you're aware that there's another whole world of bacteria and virus out there and you become vigilant about protecting yourself from that, then you're going to prevent a lot of illness mm-hmm. for yourself and other people too. Well, and that, that's the other thing, healthcare workers especially, and that also includes paramedics, EMTs, firefighters, police officers, anybody that would come in contact with somebody who'd be ill like that uh, as part of their job, they have to be, they have to consider not just protecting their own health, but protecting their families. There was, um, I don't know where it was. I think it was, might've been in New Jersey, but there was a man that was running a nursing home and he bought trailers for his staff and they're living at the nursing home. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they go to work, they come home, they go go in their trailer. And so they've got the all right. the staff and the cooks are there too. And they're not going home to their families because they don't want to bring it home to them. And that's kind of sad and it's really right. difficult. But, I mean, you want to protect your family. That's the way to do it. Well, and when I worked in the, like in the ICU and stuff like that, they, when we got to work, we were in our dress clothes, we changed into scrubs, and then when we finished our shift, we changed out of the scrubs and changed back into our dress clothes, which, you know, at least you're not taking everything that's on your uniform home with you, mm-hmm. but I, I know that in a situation like when I was in croup season, when my kids were vulnerable, I would come home, take my clothes off, put them in the washer before I even did anything right. else, and got my stuff you know, and showered. And that was the way that I could protect and prevent my family from being exposed to stuff 
that was really very contagious. That's what my daughter so. does when she goes out to the store for us because, you know, she's younger, healthier, and um, but she does. She she goes to the store. She mm -hmm. wears a mask and gloves. She comes home. She takes it off. She throws her clothes in the washer and takes a shower, and that that protects us, yep. which I really appreciate. Right. She's using a lot of lotion because mm -hmm. her skin is really dry, but she's doing it. <laughs> well, and the thing is, you know, you, you you touched on something that's really important. It's not about just you. It's about other people, too. Mm -hmm. People who are medically vulnerable, people who are, are going to be maybe it may make them, you know, terminally ill if they catch it. Mm -hmm. And so these people who are violating the distance rules and violating the safety precautions are very selfish because there may be somebody out there who, yeah, it's not going to bother you to catch it, mm -hmm. but if that person catches it, it'll kill them, you know? Right. So it's really important to, to look at it from that standpoint. Well, I have a friend in Enwell who told me the other day, he said he went to the store and at and the grocery store and they have like taped off six feet stay behind this line stay six feet apart and in mm -hmm. all the grocery aisles they only go one way so you only you don't come face to face with anybody you're all going in the same direction and he right. said that while he was there there was right. a couple of young women or girls i'm not sure which he calls them girls could be either one but um they were walking around yakking, no masks, no gloves, going the wrong way in the aisles. And he, and he was saying, you know, and I had to like fold up um, sanitizing wipes and put rubber bands on them so I could have a mask. And he says, which I didn't think was really all that effective. He says, but I didn't appreciate them walking around like that as if, you know, they didn't care whether the people the around them died apply, or not. But there's and, always that. Right. And dying yeah. is a real possibility with this disease. And the thing when they talk, I hear the politicians yes, and is. the news people and everything talking about, well, percentages. Well, you know, the flu kills 61,000 people a day or a year. I'm sorry. The flu kills 61,000 people a year. So this isn't what earlier. This isn't that bad. And I was thinking, OK, A, it's not the flu and B, so because the flu kills that many people a year, it's all right for this to kill another 60,000 people a year? That makes it 12,000 people a year. I don't know. My math is really bad nowadays. But if that's right, then I'm... 120,000. Thank you. 120,000. Yeah. See, I got yeah. no math brain cells anymore. It was a virus from before. <laughs> it was called alcohol. But... <laughs> but... <laughs> anyway, that's an infection right there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But but it's like somebody was saying that that Dr. Phil, who is not a medical doctor, was saying that, well, you know, there's a, thousands of people get killed in swimming pools every year. And I was thinking, A, swimming pools aren't contagious. <laughs> there's a lot of people that actually want one that can't yeah. get one, even if they're exposed. And And the other thing is, again, so it's okay for for because that many people die it's okay for this many more people to die no it's not and then they then they pull out the statistic that well you know only whatever five ten whatever how many ever the percentage of people that die from it is so you know the, most people aren't going to die but these it's a small percentage and i'm thinking yeah but if you're in that percentage you're a hundred percent dead 
You know, it's not it's not like you're going to get right. dead and get better. Yep. Only one person did that. And so, <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. like yeah. <laughs> the, this right. reasoning that I'm hearing from people about why this isn't such a big deal is is, is completely insane. And the big problem it's is that people valid, hear yeah. it and don't it's think about valid. it. And so they just kind of take it in and don't think about right. it. But but if you're one of the 10% or 5% or whatever it is that dies, you are 100% dead. So we need to stop right. this before more people are 100% dead. Right. Well, and I think that the, the, I mean, in New York State, I've done some research about the guidelines and things like that for criteria for ventilation and stuff like that. And they actually have a an algorithm for people who are more important to be ventilated than other people, mm -hmm. like people who have comorbidities. We won't put them on a vent, but we'll put somebody who's healthy on a vent. And so now you're looking at genocide. Now you're looking at policies that are putting value on one person's life above another. Well, and the other thing, that's putting the responsibility for that decision on doctors who don't want to be making that decision. Because, you know, doctors don't want to have to decide who's going to live and who's going to die. That's not their job. And so in that situation, right. you got to have enough for everybody that comes in. So anyways, going back to the, the choices that are made in that setting, mm -hmm. um, you know, the criteria for ventilation, first of all, is, is not, it's not regular protocol as mm -hmm. far as I can see. I'm not in the situation, but I, but I can, can look from a professional standpoint and see that there are other things intervention-wise that they could probably do before they put a person straight from a cannula to a ventilator. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also, the, um, the stockpile of ventilators in New York State, in 2015, they had 7,250 ventilators mm -hmm. and 1,750 in stockpile. During the coronavirus, they only had 3,500 vents in New York. And um, between 2014 and 2016, hundreds of ventilators were auctioned off because they didn't want to have to pay the $100,000 per year to keep the batteries current in order for them to function. And when they made the decision to do the ventilator replacement, the, the, the um, governor of our state made the decision that the funds that were allocated for ventilator replacements to put ventilators in stockpile was shifted into a solar energy program instead of into replacing ventilators. Hmm. So what they've produced here is uh, an issue of not having adequate numbers of ventilators. So what they did is they came upstate and they took ventilators from hospitals upstate in order to use them in down in downstate. Mm -hmm. And they took them by force. They sent the military in to take these ventilators out of the hospitals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was 20% of the, of the excess ventilators. So if you had 10 ventilators in your department and you at the moment only had three people on a ventilator, they were able to take most of your ventilators because you weren't util utilizing them. Mm-hmm. Which says, okay, so what about if we get an influx of patients and we need those ventilators, we don't have them because you came and took them from us. Mm -hmm. So the whole planning and emergency preparedness, for, especially for a, a city the size of New York and the cuts in the health care programs in New York, mm -hmm. set us up for the kind of issues that we're having right now. Well, and that's right happened now. in the entire nation. I mean, we had our CDC cut the, the, the infectious disease group was cut 
um, you know, funding was funneled elsewhere, and uh, so that's 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 a nationwide problem, and it's also happening in other states. But you know, as an emergency preparedness person, I, to me, as a taxpayer too, it's worth it to pay so that we have enough fire trucks, and so that we have enough police cars, and so that we have enough ventilators we have enough emergency room equipment you know we have enough cardiac monitors and and the ppe issue oh my god <laughs> but and that's the other thing as a taxpayer with that should be there because i'm willing to pay for it but the thing is with the ppe mm -hmm. new york had a had a stockpile of ppe and they said that the N95 expired, which I don't understand. They're a mask. How can they expire? But Same way milk that's expires. What they said. And so, and they didn't replace them. They didn't, they didn't feel like it was necessary for them to have that many in stockpile. And so mm -hmm. they ended up with 216,000 masks. That's all they had. So the people who are working with these patients are wearing the same PPE for every patient and just changing the outer mask. Mm -hmm. So they're wearing an N95 and they're putting a cover over it. There 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 are I guess they're changing gloves. I hope they're changing gloves really? at least. But they're saying because they're all corona patients, no big deal. They're all the sick with the same thing. <sighs> so we'll just wear the same PPE for the whole shift. Yeah, no, that's not how Which that is, works. Which completely defeats the purpose of having PPE. Exactly. No, it's not. Yeah, I know. I see healthcare <laughs> workers that are saying, "Well, they have gave us an N95 mask." And when we're done with the shift, we put it in a paper bag, and the next morning we put it back on, and I'm going, what the hell is going on? Mm. And then when a state right. actually gets P gets N95 masks shipped in from Asia, FEMA came in and confiscated them, and the, and which made absolutely no sense because the the feds have already said that we're not helping the states, and Jared Kushner said, well those are ours they're not the states and i'm thinking okay so you can't give out these extra ventilators you have in stockpile because they don't belong to the states who do you think bought them and why do you think they're in stockpile you know who do well the thing is the ones the federal stockpile was was ventilators that were not functioning most of them were not functioning yeah. because they didn't replace the batteries in them because mm -hmm. they have internal batteries that have to be replaced. And so when it, when push came to shove and they needed to set these ventilators up, they didn't work. Mm -hmm. Plus, you have to have a, a setup that fits that particular ventilator. Those things are tailor-made to each each ventilator. And so if you have you know this brand of ventilator and you only have this brand of setup, you're gonna you're gonna fight to try to get it to work because right. it's not. It's not set up the same way. Well, and I saw people that were being put on two and to a ventilator. They were they were jury rigging them so that they would be two people on one ventilator. You know what that was? That was not a need. First of all, that was not a need because they had enough ventilators. What happened was someone developed a system and a setup that you could use two ventilators for mass trauma, which mm -hmm. is mass trauma. That's an immediate need short term. Mm-hmm. These they were putting they were saying they were going to put these COVID patients on it who have very different needs for ventilation. Some have a lot worse compliance in their lungs than others. They can't they it takes a lot more pressure. 
to ventilate them. If you take one person off the ventilator, that breaks the circuit, and then you lose pressure in the whole circuit. So you have a paralyzed outpatient while you're suctioning this patient over here that's not getting ventilated. Mm -hmm. So the whole premise was just to try out this setup. They had gotten a patent for it for a dual ventilator setup, and they were using it, but it was not for medical necessity. They did it just to experiment. It was a clinical trial. That, yeah, and I, I was just beside myself when I heard it. You'd be livid. Because yeah. they were putting people's lives in danger, wow. you know, for no reason. And the thing is, there's no family to advocate for them because they won't let the family in. There's no medical personnel who can advocate for them because they have a protocol they're supposed to follow. And so these patients are being thrown to the wolves and being experimented on. Wow. And it fries my cookies. It does. Well, I'll tell you one more story because we're over an hour, but we need to go ahead and finish this discussion later. Okay. But um, I know a doctor mm -hmm. in Dallas, and he was telling me that he had a female patient come in with COVID symptoms with her husband. And so they put her on a vent. And while they were putting her on the vent, the husband crashed. And so they had to take him in and put him on a vent. And then he died, not long afterwards. And so then the doctor had to go in and tell the wife that her husband, who was perfectly fine when they took her in, had died. And there was nobody there with her. There was nobody to be with her, hold her mm -hmm. hand or anything else. She was completely alone. And the worst part of this disease is that when you die of this disease, you die alone. Your family is not going to be with you. Yep. And this is not a, this is not a pleasant death. This is a drowning in your own fluids death. It's, it's horrible and it's painful and it's difficult. And like I said, yeah. you're doing it alone. And so you do not want to get this disease and you need to do everything you possibly can not to get it or give it to anybody else. That's right. That's okay. I'm, yep. off, I'm off my soapbox now. The only way that... The only way that this whole process is going to work for prevention and flattening the curve is for people to respond correctly to the directive to stay away from large groups of people, to wear protective you know, masks, to maintain social distancing, to maintain good hand-washing techniques, to keep your own immune system healthy. Those are the ways that it's going to prevent it from being spread to maybe your grandma or mm -hmm. maybe your mama or, maybe or someone I'm else. I, know, I read of a family in New Jersey. One person came home with the illness, was sick, and three people in the family died. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not just about you. It's about other people, too. That's right. And that's what needs to be remembered. Okay, thank you. We'll, we'll pick okay, this up I think later. We beat this horse pretty good. Yeah, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> I'd like to talk some more about masks and about um, tamping it down in a, all over the country because we can't do it. In New York and then in Texas and then because, you know, there's roads between those states and it's just going to go right back into New York. And and so there are some yep. states working together, but I'd like to talk about that. And then then we can go into that whole Tarot thing because that's just weird. <laughs> so, but uh, thanks. Yeah, for, right. <laughs> OK. Thanks for all the good information here. And, and you keep healthy and safe. Keep your family that way. And we'll try and do the same. And everybody else out there, be safe. All right. Follow the protocols and take good care of yourself. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. Please feel free to give us a rating. We'd be happy to know what you think. If you have a disaster tale to share, you can send it to us at kate at disastertales.com.